Morning. Morning. Who is in with Jesus? It, my son is raising his hand out there. That's pretty good. Uh, how do we know if we're in with Jesus? How do we know if someone else is in with Jesus? And is that a question we should ask? It, it's a big question, and it has a really simple answer, which I will share with you right now. When you leave today and you walk outside, pause for a second and look at your car. And if anywhere on there it says 99.1 Joy FM, <laughs> you are in with Jesus. Now, some of you look worried. Am I saying that you're out? Of, no, don't be silly. Keep looking. If there's a little fish anywhere. And if you have both? Yes, you're definitely in. you both. Remember Enoch? He, yeah, that was what he had both. Um, I'm kidding, of course. We are here to talk about the Gospel of Mark, and it begins with a bang. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Brian talked about this when we began the series. Mark is saying no less then a new king reigns. That's the gospel part. And this king is the long-awaited savior of the Jewish people. That's the Christ, Messiah, the anointed one in English. And that this king and Messiah is the very son of God. And that Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, he is that person. This is an enormous claim. And so Mark builds a methodical case for why you should believe him, why you should believe who Jesus is. So let's reflect a little bit about the last few weeks and look at some of these claims. So the first claim, the first point in Mark's case is that Jesus passes the test. We're told that after he's baptized, Jesus is taken into the wilderness and he's tempted for 40 days, he's offered power and comfort and his own way, but he endures. He honors his father and the mission he is on, and in doing so becomes the first human to ever do so. Ever since Adam and Eve, we have been seeing and taking what we think is right, but not Jesus. He's the image of God. Claim number two, Jesus has the authority of Scripture. When he taught in the synagogue, we were told he taught with authority. He didn't list references. He didn't say who he was influenced by. He spoke like Scripture. Claim number three, Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm. In that scene in the synagogue, he cast out an evil spirit and silenced it. Claim number four, Jesus has authority over illness. When he visited Peter's house, he healed his mother-in-law who had a fever. Jesus has authority over the seen as well as the unseen. Claim number five, Jesus has authority over clean and unclean. The leper came to Jesus and entreated him, if you're willing, you can make me clean, and Jesus did. And to our ears, this might sound a little like it's the same as the illness claim, but there's more to it. 
You see, the Jews had this idea that God is holy. God is set apart. He has no peers, nothing you could really compare him to, no analogy that would do him justice. And so because God is so holy, you don't approach God the way you approach anything else. You don't treat God the way you treat anything else. To draw near to God, you had to be clean. And having a skin condition, it made you unclean. And the things you touched became unclean. The people you touched became unclean. But not with Jesus. Jesus touched the leper and did not become unclean. The leper became clean. Jesus' cleanliness is infectious. And claim number six, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. This is the climax of this early part of the book. A paralytic is brought to Jesus, and Jesus declares his sins forgiven and backs that claim up by telling him to get up and walk. Jesus is saying that even though he's not a priest, even though they're not in a temple, even though no sacrifice has been made, all the things that would have been expected at that time, that Jesus can forgive sins, something only God is supposed to be able to do. These stories, these claims are building a case that Jesus is, in fact, the awaited Messiah, the true Adam who will finally bring an end to evil and crush the head of the serpent. And today, we're going to look at a seventh claim. It's a claim that begins to answer our question of who this gospel kingdom is for, who can be in with Jesus. Let's read the passage, Mark 2, 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Bit of an aside here. It's hard to find Jesus when he's not teaching people. It's the real priority for him. Right? And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, there's more to our passage, but we're going to stop here because the claim has already been made. Do you see it? The force of this claim might be missed by us today, and that's because we really need to understand the cultural situation that Jesus was in to understand this claim. So we're going to try something a little different this morning to help us with this. So by a show of hands, who in here at any point in their life ever has been 10 years old? Almost everyone, let no one say we lack common ground. We've all, mostly all, been 10 years old. And what I would like to invite you to do, and you can close your eyes for this, but it's going to take a minute, so feel free to open back up again. But we're going to take ourselves back into the mindset of a 10-year-old. You have a lot of questions. You think you have a lot of answers. The world is a huge place. You are forming what you care about, who you know, what you're scared of. You're 10 years old. But we're going to stretch our imaginations a little bit more. Instead of whenever you were 10, it is 20 AD. And instead of wherever you were 10, you live in Capernaum in Galilee. Now, whatever your parents or caretakers did when you were 10 
probably wasn't a job at that point, but so I'll provide something to help us out a little bit. Your family makes pots. Big ones, small ones, some the size of your head. You know this for a fact because sometimes you put the pots on your head and sometimes it's funny and sometimes you get yelled at and told you'll break something and you haven't broken that many in your opinion. You like to help make the pots. You like the way the clay smells. It's earthy and wet. You like the way it feels under your fingers as the wheel turns. It's slick and smooth. On your birthday, your dad will make you a little clay horse, and you have a row of them on a shelf. Capernaum is a trading town and a fishing port. People need a lot of pots, and your family has made pots as far back as anyone can remember. Your favorite day of the week is Saturday. It's a different kind of day. Your aunts and your uncles and your cousins come to your house. You look forward to it all week. It's the only day of the week where your house doesn't smell like kiln smoke, where you can't hear the rumble of the wheel. You can hear talking and laughing and singing. You sing so many songs, you don't understand them all. They're about people from a long time ago. But you know that they're about this place where you live, how it's a special place, how God put you and your family there, a place where you could have rest, where you could be at peace, where you could be safe. But even at 10 years old, you know that the place doesn't always feel like that, that things aren't exactly how the songs seem to say. There are lots of people in Capernaum, lots of kinds of people. It's a trading town. People come and go. But there's one kind of person that you take special notice of because they make the adults, the adults, anxious. They don't sing on Saturdays. You have a hard time imagining them singing at all, but they are loud. They shout. They tell people what to do. They dress oddly. Some of them have these metal coats. You think they look a little like giant centipedes. One time you saw a really tall one that had a helmet with a lion's mane on it, and you were sure he'd killed that lion himself, and you were terrified of him. One morning your dad is going to the market. He loads the pots on the cart, and you annoy him until he lets you go with him. And you set out and you encounter some of these men. Your dad calls them Romans. And you can tell your dad is nervous. And they stop you. And they talk to your dad for a little bit. And your dad, he starts unloading the cart just onto the side of the road. But I want to go to the market, you said. And he shushes you. He's worried. You've never seen him quite like this. So the pots get unloaded and you load up the luggage, the equipment of the Romans, and you turn around and you follow them to their camp. And by the time you get there and unload it, it's getting dark. It's too late to go to the market, so you go back to where you left the pots. Most of them are there, some are missing, some are broken. You pick them back up and you go home. You fall asleep on the cart, you can hear the wagon wheel creaking. When you get home, your mom is still awake. 
You can tell she's been crying. The next morning, your dad sets out for the market again, and he won't let you go with him this time. And he's gone too long. It gets dark again. Your mom is trying not to cry, trying not to scare you. And then you hear the sound of the cart. And you go outside, and there's your dad. And his eye is swollen shut. And his lip is split. And he tried to comb the blood out of his beard, but there's some still there. The tax collector said he was a day late. And he owed double. Your dad said, he complained. He said, I don't have double. And it's not my fault I was late. The Roman garrison commander had been touring the docks that day. And he heard the commotion. And he made an example of your dad. You don't complain about the taxes. You're scared. Your mom and your dad, they comfort you. They remind you about the Saturday songs, that a Messiah is coming who will make this right, make these Romans go away, make this place safe again. Ten years go by. You're 20 now, and you make most of the pots, and you pay the taxes. And you're standing in line at the tax stand. And sitting there at the tax booth is not a Roman, but a Jew, one of your countrymen, one of your family. You know he sang those songs, too. That he knows that this kind of sin is why the Romans are here in the first place. But he works for them. Traitor. You're sure that he charges more than the Romans require. Traitor and thief. How could he? As you're seething, you think about the rumors you've heard. There's a rabbi going around. They say he can heal the sick. You saw the big crowd at the house. They say a lame person got up and walked. That this rabbi could be the Messiah. There have been messiahs before. They usually end up on a Roman execution rack. But this one feels different. There's never been rumors quite like this. And while you're thinking about this, you realize a, a commotion is occurring. A crowd has been coming down the beach. And out of this crowd comes a man. And you realize it's the man this crowd is following. It's the rabbi. And he walks up to the tax collector. And you can't believe it. This tax collector is going to get what's coming to him. Get what he deserves and you're going to get to see it. And the rabbi reaches out his arm and bares his teeth. But the hand isn't a fist. It's outstretched and welcoming and the teeth aren't a snarl. It's the most genuine smile you've ever seen. And he says, come, follow me. 
And to your great surprise, this tax collector hops up and follows him and the crowd down the beach. And you don't know what to think. What would the Messiah want with a tax collector traitor? Claim number seven. No one, no one is beyond the call of Jesus. By engaging with this tax collector, Jesus is making a statement. He's bringing into his circle a person who his other followers would rather have nothing to do with. And while this particular dynamic, people who cooperate with occupying foreign armies, isn't part of our context today, there are still thing, things like this, right? Let's, let's self-assess for a moment. Is there a kind of person that we think should not get an invitation from Jesus? That, that feels bad, right? No, we don't think that. Jesus died for everybody. Everybody should get an invite. But is there a kind of person that we feel would be unlikely to accept an invitation from Jesus? And if they did accept it, it would make things difficult, awkward? Is there a kind of person that if they came to our church, if they came to our community group, would make things uncomfortable? Person who has a certain kind of accent, lives in a certain kind of place, has a certain kind of tattoo, certain kind of skin, certain kind of hat, pita hat, MAGA hat, rainbow hat? Will you invite them to your table? I think for the first readers of Mark, the claims of Jesus are getting more and more difficult to believe. Okay, Jesus is smart. Lots of people are smart. He commands spirits. I can't see those. I don't know. He commands illness. People get better sometimes. But he makes lepers clean. He makes paralytics walk, forgives sin. I can't explain that. And he cares about tax collectors. I can't really explain that either. Does that mean he forgives tax collectors? Do I want tax collectors to be forgiven? Let's continue our passage. And as he reclined at table in his house, that's Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is at a party with tax collectors and sinners, and I think we should use our imagination here again. It's not just that Jesus was at dinner and some sinners happened to be there too, like in the same restaurant. He's engaged with them. He's talking to them. They're his followers. He's treating them with respect 
and care, enough so that it draws the attention of the scribes. It makes them uncomfortable. I think the scribes recognize from the synagogue that Jesus is also an expert in Hebrew scriptures, and he's behaving in a way that they would not, that might harm the reputation of upstanding Hebrew scripture experts. And so maybe with genuine concern, they approach Jesus' followers and say, hey, you're a rabbi. Does he know who he's talking to? He's embarrassing himself and us. And Jesus hears them and gives them this analogy. People that are well don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And Jesus heals sin. He is a sin doctor. So he hangs out with people that have sin sickness. Now, do you think any of the scribes just identified with the righteous in that analogy and left it at that? Oh, yeah, those guys are pretty bad. I'll just get back to my righteous scribing over here. Catch you later, Jesus. (laughs) Maybe some of the more oblivious ones did. I think a lot of them took it as a rebuke. I mean, they're supposed to be the ones who understand the word of God. They're bringing it to the people. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm doctoring these people, and you're not. I think the most introspective of them went home and mulled over what Jesus said and realized that it's not just that he's doctoring people they should be doctoring, but that they need the doctor too. By suggesting that there's a type of person who should be excluded, a person towards whom no effort should be made, they are revealing their own sickness their own sin, that they decide who is in and who is out. And it's the most dangerous kind of sickness, the kind you don't know you have. So what of our question? Who is in with Jesus? Let's consider a few possibilities from the stories in Mark. Does intimate and thorough knowledge of the scriptures make you in with Jesus? No. The scribes had that, right? Does declaring that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God make you in with Jesus? No, the evil spirit said that, right? Does spending all your time with friends and followers of Jesus make you in with Jesus? Now, Judas will show us that that's not the case. Here's the thing. It's the wrong question. In versus out. It is not about where you are. It is about where you're going. So I'm an engineer during the day. I'm going to draw a diagram. This is how I think about it. So position is where you are, right? And for any point on my diagram here, it can either be out of the circle or in the circle, right? Two possibilities for any position. But a point can also have velocity, and velocity is where you're going, irrespective of where you are. And any point can have a velocity towards the center of the circle or not. Now, someone is probably thinking, isn't that the same thing, you know, in the circle, out of the circle, aiming at the center, not aiming at the center? It's still just yes, no, in, out. Well, 
I don't think so. Because the circle has a size, right? If I draw the circle huge, it's easy to be in. Lots of positions are in. If I draw the circle tiny, it's hard to be in. Not many positions are in. But with velocity, I'm either aiming at the middle or I'm not. There's no threshold to cross. You see, I think in our fleshly nature, we want to put that circle up. And how big we make it is how big it has to be so that I can be inside of it. There are standards of conduct, standards of dress, standards of speech, standards of association that must be maintained to be in the circle. Let's look at the picture drawn by the dinner party at Levi's house. The scribes are in the circle of religiosity for sure. They read the books. They pray the prayers. They don't do the things that should not be done. They don't associate with people outside the circle. But the tax collectors and the sinners, they're outside, way outside, not to be trusted, selfish, traitors, maybe thieves. But Jesus reached out to them, and they responded. They reached back. They accepted Jesus' invitation to engage. Their way outside the circle, their society draws, but their velocity is towards Jesus. And so I ask you, which of them, scribes or sinners, seems in with Jesus? Jesus invited those tax collectors and sinners to dinner. And there's a very important gospel truth embedded in just how dinner parties work. Those people were engaged with Jesus because he first engaged them. They received the invite and they accepted. Jesus acted first. Without him, there's no dinner to go to. They're able to engage Jesus because he engaged them. When it comes to being in with Jesus, it's not about what people see when they look at your life. It's about what Jesus sees. Does he see you looking back at him? However far away you might feel, he is looking for you. Are you looking back at him? Now many of us, myself included, maybe thinking something like this, if I'm in with Jesus, if there's no purity test I have to pass or standard of action to maintain, to be part of what Jesus is doing, why do I still feel the weight of my sin? Maybe guilt. Maybe remorse. Embarrassment. If Jesus came to heal the sick, why do I still feel sick? Friends, the call of Jesus is not an end. It is a beginning. And when you're facing Jesus, when you're moving towards Jesus, velocity towards Jesus, you are in the care of the great physician. And he is working all things for your good.
So imagine, if you will, Alice and Bob. They both have a disease, a deadly disease that they are unaware of. It has not yet manifested its terrible effect. And Alice learns of her condition, and she goes to her doctor. And her doctor says, I understand this condition like no other, and I have a course of treatment that cannot fail. And so Alice enters the care of her doctor, and she receives tests and medicines and therapies and surgeries and stays in the hospital. And Bob goes to work and home and dinner and the golf course. Now I ask you, which of them feels sick? Alice, right? Which of them is in any danger? Bob. Feeling sick and being in danger are not the same thing. And when you are in the care of Jesus, feeling the weight of your sin and being condemned for your sin are not the same thing. If your sin feels heavy this morning, remember what Jesus told the scribes. It is heartening. He didn't come to call the have-it-all-togethers. He didn't come to call the never-messed-ups. He didn't come to call the haven't-burned-their-last-chance-just-yet-ers. He came to call the sinners, the sick, to make them well. And for those of us who have experienced the healing of Jesus, we need to guard against becoming like those scribes, skeptical of who can be healed. Because we were not called for our righteousness, for our virtue, for our purity, or anything other than our sin. And when Jesus died and rose again, the kingdom of heaven landed on earth like a comet. And it is now our honor and very great privilege to be like our king and open our tables to those who are on the margins of the page. This story appears in three Gospels, Mark, Luke, and Matthew. In Mark, we're reading here, and in Luke, the tax collector's name is Levi. That would be his Hebrew name. In the Gospel, according to Matthew, we're given a different name, his Greek name, the name that his Roman bosses would have probably known him by. And it's Matthew. The gospel according to Matthew, Matthew. And he felt no need to hide his tax-collecting past as he recorded the good news of Jesus that we can all read 2,000 years later. And in chapter 3, we'll learn the names of the other 11 disciples. One of them is Simon the Zealot. We don't know much about Simon, but his the Zealot title probably meant that he was what the Romans would have considered a terrorist, someone who actively sought to throw off the Roman yoke. 
and in the world of first century Judean politics, pretty much the opposite of Levi, the tax collector. Jesus called both of these people to be part of his most trusted followers. And this is yet another claim that when you face Jesus, follow Jesus, have velocity towards Jesus, it overwhelms whatever position you might have on a human, social, economic, political spectrum. What is the distance between tax collector and zealot when they are both headed for Jesus? Increasingly little to almost none. So, are you in? It's the wrong question, right? Are you facing Jesus? Have you heard his call? He called Levi, and he calls you too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just humbly thank you for who you are. You are great and beyond us. And we take what we think is right over and over again. We hurt each other. We hurt ourselves. And you see through all of that. You don't let that embarrass you. You reach your hand out and you invite us. Lord, help us to humbly accept every day. Help us to renew our acceptance, Lord. And may the grace and the mercy you have shown us fill us up and spill over into every person we meet. Thank you, God. You are so good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.